we basically started a new business, iterated it, developed it, scaled it, and then ended up selling it and then started again and then again. I'll still be a great believer in innovation. And the main thing to remember in innovation is at some point, some of your shareholders may want to sell and sometimes you don't want to sell. But at the same time, the most important thing is to focus on the innovation itself and in building the business itself. This is the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, and global leaders. This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, with the mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and on today's episode, I'm speaking with Paul Byrne, the CEO of Currency Fair, which is the online currency exchange platform that lets you transfer money throughout the world in seconds and at a fraction of the cost. Paul Byrne started his career as an accountant, and ironically, this is actually the third episode in a row where our guest is a qualified accountant turned CEO. Previously, we had Mary McKenna. In our last episode, we had Ronan Dunn. And in this episode, we have Paul. But Paul's career as an accountant was just at the beginning of his career. In my eyes, I see Paul Byrne as a builder. He builds companies. Before joining Currency Fair, he scaled and sold three companies between 2017 and 2016. And during that time, he noted all the lessons that he learned about quickly scaling successful businesses into a playbook. This playbook was, as he refers to it, a guardrail to prevent yourself from making the same mistakes again and offered a tried and proven path to success. And after selling his last company, which was called Cadency, In 2016, Paul planned to go into semi-retirement and set up a boutique consultancy businesses in Dublin where he could share his knowledge and experience with founders that are looking to grow. And that led him to Currency Fair, where he initially started going into the business one day a week to bring in some of his know-how and expertise. But that one day a week role quickly moved into a full-time role as CEO, and he's continued in that role for the last four years. In this interview, we chat about some of Paul's principles to build successful companies, his perspective on giving people autonomy and the space to make their own decisions, and why he feels that Currency Fair have a strategy in place to continue to succeed throughout this pandemic. But before we get into all that, let's learn a little bit about Paul's early beginnings. I grew up on, on obviously a farm, um, which is a business, right? You know, my father uh, had uh, run it. it was what kind a of business. a farm was it? Uh, originally, it was a dairy farm, and then we we, we turned to grain, and then we went back uh, back to uh, dairy later on. And, uh, and you know, it was a, it was a great business. I love working in it in the summers. Uh, and my mother had a bed and breakfast. Like she was one of the early members or family members of the Irish Farmers Association. So she really had a very good business brain uh, in terms of, uh, you know, and she was heavily involved in promoting walking holidays in Ireland back when, before walking became a thing, right? You know, uh, so like, so I, I did learn a lot, right? And my parents always would have said, look, you know, go to college, get an education, learn how things work. And then, and then you know, learn, then get into a business where you can learn more, you know, so so that you can actually, you know, be refine your craft before you step up onto the stage to take a leadership position and i think it's the right way to go you have to be you have yeah, to learn the foundations of it all in fact i'm still learning like nobody has all mm. the answers and the day you think you have all the answers is the day you need to stop right you know because you're 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 never done with learning and you know and that's the great thing about the internet age is that there's so many new things happening that you know you learn from people who work for you years ago it was the other way around years ago you're expected to teach people 
you know, um, and help them with their career. Now you now you end up learning as much from from much younger people coming through who have lots of different creative ideas, and different ways of looking at things and doing things using technology. Um, which you know, which, which keeps everybody fresh and keeps everybody you know focused on. And when did goal. you see that start to switch? Just out of curiosity, it's interesting that you say that. I'd say in the last ten years, I've I've noticed it more. Like you know, because like I go back to when I joined Trintech first in late 1990s. The internet was only becoming a thing, right? You know, it it, it had become an email, basically a way for people to communicate by email. Generally, it started in universities and it became much more you know prolific. And you know, we. We, we launched an email service inside the company, which was a big thing, right? You know, in the late 1990s, it was new. And then we developed software for internet trading, which was credit card-based software, payware, and that allowed people, merchants to trade online. Uh, and at that time, uh, Netscape was the biggest uh, of the search engines, right? Google was only a startup. In fact, Google started up just down the road from where our office was in, in California. So we knew the people who, we knew some of the people there, um, if there's some of the early employees there. So I, I've seen that shift over time from about 2000 onwards where the internet became much more important and, you know, prolific. And and I guess it's probably in the last 10 years where you see those who have come through college, you know, those who started going to college, say, 2005, 2006, where all, a lot of college courses have become more internet savvy and internet enabled and, you know, are focused on how to make people more digitally aware. So you see younger people coming into businesses now who are much more, technology oriented there's you know they may have done a lot of their online lectures online for a start which is different in a classroom environment a lot of their projects were done in digital businesses they're very savvy with technology and they have a different way of looking at things right and a much more visual uh you know things like youtube and how to how to maximize the value of that in a business you know these are all not new for people in their uh, 20s and 30s but they're new for people who were in their 40s and 50s right because it didn't exist when they were going to college and starting work so i've seen a shift up it's gradual over time and i think if you're in ireland which is where i am currently based i think you see a lot more of it because the american multinationals who were here a lot of them are in the technology space right so consequently they're very digitally driven businesses you know whereas 50 years ago 40 years ago 30 years ago they were there were pharmaceuticals they were manufacturing you know, there's still pharmaceuticals, but there's not very much manufacturing now. Yeah. You know, now it's much more, it's all services based. So they're all educated to, to work in service industries. They all learn about, you know, about digital servicing, such and digital, you know, strategies. So you, you start you start to see it evolve over time. And yeah, in the last 10 years, I think I would see a lot That's more. That's interesting. It's interesting you say that, just how it's flipped around, I suppose, how you have to like, you have to have that balance where the leadership role is, is about as yeah. much about welcoming interesting ideas that come around that are fresh rather than always just kind of pushing out your ideas and how you see what's going to happen. And on that then, yeah. so you, you worked at uh, Pricewaterhouse and then went on, you kind of left, you you were working in an auditing role there, right? And then you left and you went into to join a company. Yeah, I was working in an auditing role, but I was actually, some of the work, some of the assignments I had were were effectively secondments in an accounting role to businesses. So I, like I worked in New York, London, at Brussels with Price Waterhouse as well, and not just in the Dublin office. Um, so I got a good exposure to kind of some of the some of the accounting type roles as is on secondment. And then I moved into a publishing business. It was an interesting business. Uh, Lafferty uh, guys, Michael Lafferty, set it up. Uh, he used to be a Financial Times uh, journalist. Right, wrote the next column. Super intelligent guy. Great business. And he was he was moving the business back to Ireland from the UK. Like he relocated the whole company back to Ireland, um, which was kind of unique at the time. Um, 
and it was an interesting business. It was a service business dealing with people. It was we were actually in the subscription business. So you know, again, early days of subscription, right? So now every everything in technology and software is subscription based. But you know, we were doing subscription newsletters at the time and subscription periodicals, which were all content driven. So there was no advertising. It's just content driven. So you really were trying to balance journalism, quality content, uh, and then also be able to sell that content and have people you know pay for it, right? Um, not which uh, which was Interesting in terms of how you build, for me, it was like another learning experience about how to build a strong service culture, how to make sure you understand your customers' needs, you serve, and then you service those needs because ultimately your income was based on them paying you, right? you know, and, and, and renewing the subscription. Um, so, you know, that was that was a great uh, learning experience for me. And I, I moved, I started there in, the, in an accounting role and I moved into a management role. So ultimately, after maybe two years there, I moved from the accounting side to the management side. So I became the publisher. Um, of the business as such, so effectively ran the business um, for for the founders, and, and that was that was great because it exposed you more to the commercial side, you know, of the business. Whereas in the accounting world, you actually understand the commercials because you're reporting on them and you're involved in decision making. But it's a little bit different now when you have to actually, you know, walk in the shoes of the person who make, has to actually make the yeah. decisions. Um, and you learn, you learn, and you learn a lot. And again, I learned a lot there, basically as well. So, um, which helped me. A lot when I moved to Trintec, because even though in Trintec I went back into a CFO role to help fundraising and ultimately with an IPO and take the business public, the fact that I had business background was a great help. Um, you know, in terms of being able to manage the finance function around uh, commerciality of the business. What was what was the business at Trintec? It was started off as a, uh, a manufacturing business, manufacturing uh, merchant terminals where you know sh- shops would basically process credit card transactions. The old, you know, the, the now you know, chip and pin machines, you know, we put your credit card in. Back then they were basically swipe machines where you swiped your card down the side of the machine. And that was the original business. But the two founders there, John and, C- and Cyril McGuire, um, very quickly saw the shift of on the emergence of online e- internet commerce. So you know so we developed uh, software for online commerce. So we were basically um, manufacturing and selling the software for, that would sit on a PC, basically for you, the customer, could buy online. And then we also had the software that the merchant uh, would basically have on their web store, like the you know the plug-in merchant acquiring software, which is now a huge uh, global business. And then we also had the software at, at at the at the bank for processing all transactions at the back end. So we were at the very very early stages of that, and we were very fortunate that both Visa and Mastercard were were actually um, shareholders in the company as well. That always helps. Uh, and the business it did happen. It was that was a really innovative business. So that was my first real taste of innovation. You know, because we did um, our company actually processed the world's first ever euro transaction when the euro as a currency was established because it was an electronic transaction. Um, that was in, you know, and then in 2002, and so that's only like 18 years ago, uh, we did the world's first mobile phone payment transaction as well. So like, you know, it was uh, we did it with Nokia and I think it was MasterCard at the time, but that was the first time a credit card had ever been used on a mobile phone to buy something. So you, you just look at the way that industry has innovated in 18 yeah, years phenomenal. to where we are today. It's phenomenal, exactly. But we were at the very forefront of that. So that was my, that was my, to me that was that was a great learning experience in terms of the speed of innovation, the speed of change in in, in a particular industry, and um, the fact that we as a small company were at the very forefront of that in terms of developing developing it and, and moving it forward. And ultimately, we, we we successfully sold that business then to Verifone, which is which was one of our, one of our biggest competitors at the time. And they 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 pretty much consolidated the industry. I think they bought most of the players. 
in the industry over over time. So, you know, so that, that was what we did. And it was a very successful uh, Irish company. There was one of only two or three that did, that did an IPO on NASDAQ um, ever. Uh, and like it, it was a great time to be in technology, right? Because that was the emergence of the internet yeah. age. Uh, you know, back in between 1998 and 2002, 2003. You were there for quite a while, weren't you? I was there for a while, but the business changed. The business changed. Um, so the like after we sold the business to Verifone, then uh, it, I, I basically became president. But at that time, we were really in, in starting up new businesses. So, you know, my role as an innovator then went on to, to basically to manage a treasury business and then start up the healthcare business in Chicago and then ultimately start... Um, the last business we had, which was which was a, a multi-end workflow and reconciliation solution for multinationals, which was uh, Cadency. So even though the Trintech name stayed as a legal holding structure, the business was, was completely different each time. So you know, we basically started a new business, iterated it, developed it, scaled it, and then ended up selling it, and then started again and then again, basically. So, and it was a good. It's uh, you know I'll, I'll still be a great believer in in innovation, and and you you can. The main, the main thing to remember in innovation is at some point, you know, some of your shareholders may want to sell and sometimes you don't want to sell. But at the same time, the most important thing is to focus in on the innovation itself and then building the business itself. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about that because you've developed like some sort of, uh, I, I've seen this mentioned, uh, a playbook for, you know, a quick acceleration of success. What is what is this playbook that you've kind of come to, to recognize? Because you mentioned the two other businesses there, Concuity and Cadency. Like you had rapid success over, I think it was less than four years with each of those companies, right? So I'm just curious about how you developed that. Well, actually, to be honest, we 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 developed it by learning on the on the job. So like when we started out, when I started with with Trintec, um, obviously it was a startup, right? It was a tiny company. So we, I think I was in the top, I was in the first maybe 20 employees or so, roughly, of the company. Um, so obviously John and and, and Cyril uh, had founded it. But uh, the business grew to 650 people pretty quickly. Uh, we went public on NASDAQ. So we were, we were very much at the very rapid end of the innovation curve and the scaling curve. Uh, and that was the time that there was, you know, all these great management books, good to great, crossing the chasm, and all these books had come out. And I actually got to know Paul Johnson um, quite well. So, you know, I used to talk to him a bit on and off because he was one of our investors uh, about basically why he wrote the book originally and, and and how to, you know, how businesses... Which book did Paul Johnson write? Crossing the Chasm. Which we were dropping in, but you learned. Right? And we didn't do everything brilliantly. We made some mistakes. We learned some, you know, good lessons along the way. So what I st- we started to do was write, write things down, right, in the old-fashioned way, you know, pen and paper. So I started writing things down that I learned. So as I went... From Trintech then to building the treasury business, which was um, a Reconnect, which was like a cash reconciliation treasury. It was a service business. It wasn't, and it became a technology business. You know, we started to figure out, and I had two other guys working with me at the time, two other Irish guys uh, based in Texas, living in Texas. And we started off, you know, understanding what we were good at and bad at. Now, they were also accountants, by the way. <laughs> but then the business at the time was an accounting type business. It was, you know, it was it was there was a lot of accounting aspects to it. Uh, so we started to write down um, what we what we learned and what we what we you know what we uh, how we could improve and iterate and then what we were good at and what we weren't good at and what gaps we needed to fill as we went there about building the teams out in the companies. So when we launched Concuity, which was a healthcare business, we we scaled that rapidly within two years. Okay, and then we sold that within two year two years later um, to a public company in the U.S. called the Advisory Board, and you know it was a brilliant 
use of the playbook for us. So as we 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 knew we were on we knew we were on the right track now because things we had written down and lessons lessons we learned previously helped us make to make less mistakes. And ultimately, a playbook really it's a it's a guide rails, right? In terms of oh yes, I remember last time I did that didn't quite work, so I'm not going to do it a second time. I'll do it better this time because I'll do something slightly different. So we started to to refine the way we did things. So we, you know, and they were our processes or strategies or our different things. We visualized them. Uh, and then, and that worked. And, and then when we did uh, Cadency, which we launched in 2011, it was the same two guys and myself. It was the same three people. Um, and, you know, we started that business basically on the back of a napkin uh, with, a great, with an idea that we had because we'd already worked, we'd all worked for Trintec back in the day and as a public company, so we knew the shortcomings of a lot of the ERP and, account, and accounting systems. So we knew there was a gap in the market to be filled. Uh, so we decided we would do it again. And then we did it again, got support from a, from a, a high growth investor, um, private, um, high growth venture capital investor called uh, Spectrum Equity. And then we set up building the business again, fo- following and refining the playbook. So over, over, so I guess over 10 years, we we learned what worked and what didn't work, and then I you know we wrote it down, and um, it became known as colloquially as, as this kind of playbook we had, which was just a, a, a life's lessons, right? Life's lessons and um, written there, and I and you know I I then when after we sold after we sold the uh, cadency business to Vista Equity Partners, two thousand and end of fifteen, early sixteen, uh, I I moved back to Ireland full time because I'd been traveling back and forth a lot. And so I relocated myself back here, um, and then I set up a business called Accelerate Success, which was a it was meant to be a boutique consultancy to give back to startups. So what I would do is I'd basically help them kind of scale it up by using the playbook. So like you know, and um, and I did that like I used to run some group sessions, you know, maybe, uh, and I do individual one to ones with people, and you know, it was it was I didn't charge for it. It was my way of helping scale the Irish technology sector, right? Um, so, and that's where I, that's where it came from. And um, you share some of the the fundamental, I suppose, principles that that arose over and over again. The main thing, and this is where we're born out in cadency, is we, the main the main thing. And a lot of these are fairly simple, right? So the main the main thing at any business we we found is that you have to have a vision for the business. Like what what is it going to look like? Um, what are your problem you're trying to solve? You know, st- you know, there's a saying is it, is that. Um, that cynic wrote, you know, start with the why. So, you know, it's, and it's true, you have to have a vision. So we, we made sure that it was a very clear, articulate, simple vision for the business. And then had a, had a, we had a mission below that. And then below the mission, we had operating processes, right? But then the, mo- the main thing then between the operating processes was we had this constant um, loop of communication. And um, we had lots of processes and strategies around making sure that there was a constant iteration of the, of, of the processes tied into the vision. So we, we actually created a graphic for us to explain it to all new employees. Um, and, you know, we were able to then say, look, here's how we actually operate as a business. So within this feedback loop, we let people make make a lot of mistakes because everybody has to learn, right? You can not you can teach people something, but on if they learn it themselves, it's 10 times more yeah. valuable. So we had these kind of, you know, we would allocate givers decisions, uh, making ability to people very quickly. And then give them guide rails in terms of how to make these decisions. And then if it didn't work, we'd say, okay, let's sit down and understand why that didn't work. So you know next time around to do it slightly differently. Uh, and that's what we would do. We promoted people very young and we had very specific, uh, very specific um hiring rules, you know, in terms of personalities. So we were hiring for personality um and for background and work ethic as opposed to specific expertise. Unless we had a role that required specific expertise, like a very deep technical role. 
we would spend more time uh, hiring to your personality and whether you'd fit with our culture than we actually would um, uh, basically looking at your CV, right? So, and, and we heard we heard an interesting bunch of people, let's put it that way, you know, and they all were, most of them worked out brilliantly and they went on to have very good careers at, at the Cadency or uh, some people moved on, did great things, have done great things elsewhere, which is what you want. Ultimately, you want people to kind of graduate, right, to some extent and help them on their career uh, and not become a prisoner to the company. So you want them to, to you know, to learn with you, contribute with you and, and you know, grow their own self-worth as individuals in terms of what contribution they can make to the business, to, to the business or to society generally. Um, and that, that's what was built was pretty simple procedures, uh, total honesty. Um, so like if we didn't, if one of us thought you, you know, things weren't working out, you weren't doing a great job, we didn't wait around for a HR process to kind of, you know, to articulate that we would pretty much have a direct, fairly direct conversation. And by the way, that worked both ways. Like we, you know, we will, uh, we had town halls regularly with staff. We let people say what they wanted to say. We had open forums, safe zones. So it was really more about communication and in processes for making decisions and let people, you know, let, let people make the decisions and not try to second guess them. Um, and, you know, uh, but it was the whole essence of us using the vision to build a community in the company, you know, or what came known sometimes as a tribe, right? Yeah. You know, we referred to like our own community or our own tribe and, and it was successful and people bought into what we were trying to do and, you know, and they, they, uh, they saw that we were, they could get lots of freedom to make decisions. They could, you know, we were growing and hiring people and, and it, it worked. And it, like, like everything else, when, when things are going well and businesses are growing, it's easier to get people on, you know, in, to roll in behind you. And then if we had a, you know, a couple of tough quarters, we were able to kind of eyeball people honestly and say, look, you know, this quarter wasn't as good as the last quarter. We need to make some changes. Here's what we're doing. Here's, and by the way, more importantly, here's why we're doing it. Here's why we're making these changes. So I give people context because most people can deal with good news and bad news equally if you give them the right yeah. context. Often, often people shy away from giving people bad news because they're afraid of how the person will react to the news. When really, what they're afraid of is how they're going to tell them them tell them the bad news. You know what I mean? So, so we we had again we had pretty simple ways for doing that in terms of open communication. Very interesting, you know, because like I suppose in the last uh, two three years, uh, a book that became very popular in business circles was Principles by Ray Dalio. Uh, but essentially, what what you're speaking about is a similar kind of ethos about like listing out your principles and that people who come to the company have a, a playbook of that they can that they can reflect on so everybody is sharing a similar perspective of how this business is going to be run yeah exactly and then and then people will buy into it and and, uh, and to be honest when when we sold the business to vista equity partners they 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 were doing the same thing themselves at a, but at a much deeper level you know they had a much more sophisticated hiring process like they were hiring maybe one percent of the people who applied applied to work across their entire portfolio in a year there was, you know, they had a very specific testing regime for testing your personality scores to make sure you would fit with the ethos of the organization and very much more driven by formalizing lots of things we had in the playbook. Like their playbook was at an, a different level to, to ours. I think that's ultimately, you know, the way companies are successful, right? You, you need to have alignment across the company between everybody as to what you're trying to achieve. If you spend more time trying to explain everything internally all of the time you're not spending enough time talking to your customers you know or talking to prospect prospective customers sure. as well so it's quite a, you know so we were very focused on getting it right on day one with the etos division the kind of the i suppose you could um the values of the company right you know and we, we live the values you know like um people need to enjoy coming to work 
you know, people need to, you know, get a buzz out of coming to work, whether it's whether it's the social engagement, it's the professional development, it's the professional success of the business doing well, because everybody wants to tell their friends, hey, I'm working for that cool company on the road. You know, you can be cool or you can be successful or you can try and be both. We were trying to be both, right? And it, it worked. It's work, kind of working at currency fair. Well, it is working at currency fair as well. So, you know, it's just a different context because currency fair is a slightly different business. Every business is different. Yeah. Let's talk um, about that because uh, just to talk about how you got involved with currency fair, because currency fair is, is it, 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 it 10, 11 years old now at this stage? Yeah, it's, it is. It started by Brett and uh, uh, Sean and a couple of other, two other guys um, back in 2010 or 11. Uh, so, I, I was a, I was just a customer of the company. That's how I got to know them in the first place. Like you know, I was I, because I was in back, traveling back and forth to states a lot. I you know had uh, U.S. dollars and, and euros and stuff. So I I was a customer of the company. And then uh, when I came back here uh, full time, uh, I knew one of the investors uh, frontline. I knew Shay Garvey pretty well. In fact, I'd known Shay since the mid 1990s because their office used to be right next door to the regional Trintec office, you know, in South County Business Park. So I used to see him for lunch a couple times a week. So I got to, I knew him really well. And I met him and uh, for a cup of coffee and he asked me would I go in and go into Currency Fair because um, Brett was looking for someone to give him, give him a hand, right? He was trying to scale the business. Um, they got to, <coughs> me, they got to about 80 people. And so I went in to, I went in to help uh, Brett for a few weeks. And then after a while, we kind of Brett this Brett asked me, would I, would I come in full time uh, and kind of do a lot of the work that he, he was much more a product guy. And he, and like Brett is an incredibly intelligent um, uh, scientist. In fact, he's a probably scientist is probably the best way to describe him. Uh, great guy, great guy. But uh, so so I basically then effectively took over the business at that point in terms of maybe investing in it and becoming the CEO of the company at that time. Uh, and, and the reason I did it was because. I thought the people working the company were fantastic, totally committed to the business. Brett had a very, a very strong vision for the company. Uh, the values in the company were great. Uh, and then we set about, uh, you know, directing currency fair on a, on a growth path to try and scale and grow. So we, and that's what we've been focusing on the last couple of years now in terms of the geographic expansion of the business and the product range expansion of the business as well. And can you just explain a currency fair to people, how, how that, how the business model works? Because it's a, uh, it's a similar use case that we all have, but it's a very different approach to maybe the way that people would be typically aware of how money is transferred. Yeah. So Currency Fair basically is, is effectively an online multi-currency account. Okay. So basically you set up an account with Currency Fair, you go to the same KYC or AML as you would for setting up like a bank account, but a lot of it's done electronically. So it's much faster and more seamless. It can be done in a couple of minutes. And then you can use that account then to exchange from one currency to another currency and then and you can pay people around the world and from the account and in the same way you can with a normal bank account and uh, the biggest benefit of having an account with currency fair is the rate so we obviously our revenue is derived from the margin we make on foreign exchange but the rate we charge for that uh, for foreign exchange is way cheaper than a bank so we're about eight times cheaper than a bank for making a transfer um any to, to any any significant currency so if you so in that sense people save a lot of money with us and that was Brett's philosophy originally, and, and it was because he himself had the same issue and challenged moving money from Ireland to Australia. Uh, and he, uh, so, and that's what we, the business has grown on. So the company, you know, the bit, our customers have saved about 300 million euros uh, comparing to bank rates since the company was founded. So the, like the savings are incredibly material um, for every, every individual. And 
and that's what we've been doing. So originally, the business started off was mostly for individuals, like you know, expats, people traveling around the world. Um, and we've we've started we've expanded it now in the last couple of years to service to be to enable us to service SMEs or small businesses in a much more you know significant way. And, and in addition to that, we've also started to expand into uh, into into Asia, um, dramatically as well, and particularly into China for cross-border business payments into China. We have our own particular channel and partner in China for that. So the business is evolving that way, but you know, in simple terms, for most people, you, you think of it think of it as a multi-currency bank account, but it's not a bank account because technically speaking, we're not a bank, but it operates in the same way, basically exactly in the same way. It's all online or on, on the app and integrates with, with multiple accounting systems, particularly with Xero, and has all the controls and approvals businesses would need, you know, in terms of multi-users and all, all those kind of things. So it's, um, it's a pretty sophisticated um, proposition, actually, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, like all like all good, uh, you know, online software apps. It looks simple to use on yeah. the outside, but there's a huge amount of of detail, technical engineering in the back end to make it look easy on the front, you know, at the front end. And in, in simple well. terms, basically, if I'm if I'm exchanging money from the US to Ireland, I will push money out of my US fund or out of into currency fare. But the way that that's happening, right, is you aren't necessarily taking it from the US into Ireland. You're just taking it from one account into Ireland into my Irish account. The way we work is we, we have our own rails, our own infrastructure, right, which we've invested in and built over many years. So that allows us to do everything local to local. So we don't do international transfers or uh, in, the, in the sense of the traditional way a bank would do them. But to make it this way, the one reason is why the costs are so much lower. So we would, in simple terms, if you're sending money from Ireland to the US, you would send money from your Irish bank account, right, into your 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 currency fair account in euros in in Ireland or in the EU, right. So it's a separate transfer. So it's a local transfer, right. It's not international transfer, local transfer. And then as soon as you exchange that money into US dollars, we give you access to US dollars in your currency fair account in a US bank. So again, if you're taking money out of the account, it's a it's a US local payout, and that, that all happens in real time in terms of the exchange on the platform. So that's so it makes it much faster than traditional traditional you know wire transfers, which tend to be 24 hours or 48 hours, right? And makes it much cheaper because there's no wire fees or international transfer fees because it all happens you know book to book. Yeah, and then obviously we give you a better rate as well than a bank will give you. So you effectively, the best example we use is if you're in a, if you're in two countries where there's a what's called a faster payments uh, payment uh, system, whereby you have real time local settlement, you literally can move money from those two countries to another country in maybe 15 seconds. So UK is a good example, Hong Kong, um, Australia is bringing in faster payments. So literally you can transfer money from a bank account in Hong Kong, get to your currency fair account in Hong Kong and out to the UK recipient in, yeah, maybe 15 seconds or slightly longer, depending on how quickly that your, your, your bank processes faster payments. Because it's meant to be real time, but Everything in banking is, is not quite right real time, right? Because everything is historically on a batch basis, but the batches run every couple of seconds. Um, so that's the way it operates, uh, pretty much. So it's a pretty sophisticated, um, you know, proposition, uh, which basically gives people a very quick, uh, um, quick, quick, quick way to pay. Gives them a great rate, and it gives them a great experience in terms of being totally in control in the app or online in terms of their balances and their account. Well, what's interesting, I think, is because when I saw companies like Currency Fair coming on the market first, I thought. Oh, well, it's a great idea, but I'm sure they're going to be, you know, they're going to be crumpled up by the banks pretty soon because the banks are just going to offer this. But what interested me was when I heard you speaking about this, about how this is something that the banks will probably never offer because it's not in their interest to be able to do this because 
banks in their nature are nationalized. They're, they're national operating businesses. They, they don't really play on the international market. So therefore, they'll never really be able to do this. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. Because uh, like we are like we're a payments company. The reality is yeah, we're, we're, the, we're the same as the payments division of a bank. Okay. Because um, the bank obviously has multiple products, it has mortgages, it has lending, you know, life insurance, investments, a whole range of products. We only have one. It's called payments, right? So we we would be exact same as the payments arm or subsidiary of a bank. The one big difference between us and a bank is we're in you know 70, 80 countries, right? Any bank is only in one or two countries because they don't. There's no. There's very few global banks realistically. You know, you might a couple of American banks, Citibank, maybe HSBC in the UK. Standard Chartered, you know, they're all quasi-global. They're not everywhere. You know, they're in certain geographic regions or in certain territories. But because of the way we built our infrastructure as a payment company, and because we sit on top of local banks in each one of those countries through a partnership with those banks, we've become a global payment company, right? So, and banks can't compete with that because banks don't don't have licenses in all the countries we have licenses in. What I'm interested about, though, you know, I've used it and it's a great it's a great proposition and it, certainly the ease of it and the speed of it makes it a whole lot better. But you spoke about, you know, from your playbook decision making. But if you go to the decision making of the consumer, what about the way the kind of the behavioral decision making of a consumer today? Because so many consumers are so their default is just to do anything that's financially driven through a bank. Have you have you seen a challenge at times to try and veer consumers away from using banks to using somebody like Currency Fair? Oh yeah, from a, like from a scaling growth point, growth point of view, like getting people to move away from that that inertia, like changing people's behavior, um, is the biggest single challenge we have in a marketing sense, right? So you know we, we do it many many ways to our marketing team. You know we obviously have some brand building, you know, in terms of building Currency Fair as a trusted brand, and you know a lot of that's around trust pilots and you know scores and independent reviews and ratings and we've got canstar in australia as well so you know where we've independent agencies who rank and rate us as a quality service um we've obviously got customer feedback which all helps you know um basically as well and then ultimately it's about people understanding the service and the quality of the service we provide whether it's the pricing it's whether it's the um the speed right or the ease of use as you say uh, or also, um, probably most importantly, is if somebody has a question, how do you engage with that customer in such a way that they feel satisfied? The question has been answered. They they know you've solved the problem. You may not have solved the problem 100%, right? Because you know the money could be in a suspense account at their bank or whatever. But you've you you're, you've got, given them a path to solve solve it pretty quickly, right, for them. So, and that, that's the part that people I think underappreciating the whole financial services world is the quality of customer service. Like there's a reason banks don't get very highly rated, right? You know, for customer service. We're the opposite. We're we're a technology company in financial services, but we're very customer service driven, right? What's the most successful avenue that you've taken so far to try and um, uh, maybe subdue that inertia within people? to make currency fair seem like a, a more viable option when they're transferring money? Well, I guess we do lots of things on the, on the marketing side, you know, um, in terms of just campaigns, but the, and a lot, and some of the campaigns really have been uh, different, slightly different, right? So for example, last year we had a come home campaign where we sponsored a, you know, a, a basically a package for someone, an Irish immigrants to come home to Ireland uh, because, you know, there was a huge shortage of, of skilled people in Ireland at the time. And we, 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 we ran a competition where we agreed to pay for their rent for a year, all their moving costs. It was a bit different, but it was our way of engaging with, with, with our customers because a lot of our customers are expats who live abroad, right? Um, 
Now we did it for the Irish community because we had mostly because it was coming to the 10th year anniversary of the company and we wanted to do something based on the countries we were founded in. So ultimately the winner was an Irish person um, living in Australia, but that was coincidental that they were in Australia because they were all people were from, were from all over the world and they weren't all, all Irish people who entered either. And so that was this interesting. And uh, now at the moment we're actually sponsoring Sinead Diver, the Australian um, Olympic athlete, you know, who took up marathon running in her late thirties, uh, who tipped for a medal next year in the Olympics. And she, she's going to become an ambassador for us in Australia. Now, again, She's originally an Irish citizen from 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 the west of Ireland, um, and that that backstory interests us a lot in terms of the company's heritage. You know, people living born in one country move to another country and become hugely successful somewhere else. Um, and and Sinead is a fantastic um, you know ambassador uh, in terms of um, you know taking 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 something and innovating something, which is a, a running talent that she had, and then you know later in life then becoming really really like world class at it. Uh, and so we ran those campaigns to, you know, to, and they've helped, you know, increase awareness. But from a strategic point of view, what we've really been pushing hard on that's been very successful for us is is expansion into Asia. Um, you know, we we see massive opportunity uh, in Asia as a uh, because the economies there are are growing much faster than the rest of the world. You know, if you, any kind of tr- uh, three five year time horizon, um, the China is now the, the world's manufacturing center. I think that's undisputed. I mean, it's been heightened by the coronavirus because all this, the problems with supply chains around the world all, all flying back to, to Chinese manufacturing installed in the month of March and April. So, and we, we so we've basically been 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 uh, you know been starting to grow our, our presence on the ground there. So we've ta- we've you know we've targeted uh, China as a as a key market for us in terms of helping people pay their Chinese suppliers. Um, we're, we're targeting, you know, businesses in Australia uh, with Singapore, Hong Kong. We're looking at uh, Indonesia, Thailand, and, if, and um, Philippines, other countries where we can help people or help businesses. And so it's not always us looking for a license in those countries. It's, it's helping local businesses partner with people like ourselves to help international trade flows, right? So um, basically as well. And, you know, last year, we, in order to kind of start that messaging, uh, we sponsored the Asian Gaelic Games so obviously, you know, as an Irish person, you're familiar with the GAA. Um, so, you know, the, there is a very big uh, GAA community in Asia. So we sponsored the, their games in Kuala Lumpur uh, last year as, you know, as, as part of an awareness campaign, but also as a way of giving something back, you know, in the sense of, look, you know, we were fortunate. We could afford to sponsor it. You know, our business was doing very well in Asia. So when we were asked to do, do it, we were happy to step up and give something back. Uh, and also, you know, sending a very clear message to the market that we believe in people. We believe in 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 the quality of, of service and helping and supporting and that's, people. That's something that's obviously very important to you since you came in. And I want to kind of just expand on that because what, what's been the shift in your strategy in Currency Fair's approach since you've come in? Because the the company was loss making at the point when you arrived, right? But now it's it's starting to turn a profit. Uh, yeah, well, we're still investing, you know, as well, because uh, like in financial services, and it's the same in any business, right? When you're trying to go global, you are going to incur losses, you know, basically as you go along because you're investing. So, yeah, the core business we have is is profitable. And then, you know, we are investing in new countries, right? So in, in, it takes, you know, a year or two to get to each individual country to the point where it's making a profit. And that's all fine. That's part of the business plan. And we have shareholder funding, you know, to support all that. Um, but that's our philosophy really hasn't been has been driven on not on the numbers per se but on the approach which is you know give people the ability to to take decisions you know um give them a roadmap and give them a plan for growth and give them a vision for what currency fair aspires to be not just 
go both as a service in terms of what we aspire to be for our customers, right? Because that's the most important thing, but also what we aspire to be as a company in terms of the geographic countries we want to be in, the products and services we want to offer, you know, and give them, you know, basically give them an opportunity to say, okay, I want to be part of this. I want to be part of something. You know, I see the direction of travel of currency fair. Yeah. I, I am hundred percent bought into their culture around how to support their customers and what they do for their customers and going the extra mile. Uh, and I like the, like the idea of the growth strategy for the company and therefore I want to work here, right? I want to work for this business. That's been the main difference. And I'm not saying that it wasn't like that before. Don't get me wrong. Cause Brett had done it and the guys in a pretty, pretty fantastic job of getting a business up and running and getting a small company to be global in the first place, which is difficult for any business. Um, but I think we've just brought, just the new management team has just brought a different dimension to it in terms of, you know, being much more focused and granular about the, the, the geographic, you know, direction of the company, which is into Asia and also into the US. Uh, and uh, um, and then the products we offer around, you know, improving our service offerings for existing customers, um, high-end consumers, and obviously creating new propositions on the business side, basically as well. Um uh, yeah, and that's been, it's just been a change, I suppose, in ethos and, and uh, you know, applying more rigor, right? Moving away from the founder-led culture, you know, which 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 is, which is you absolutely needed at the start, right? You have to have all hands on deck. But at some point, as you go, start to grow a bit further, you need to kind of get a lot more operationally oriented around processes and structures. And, you know, um, sure, you want people to make decisions. You want to give them total flexibility to make those decisions and autonomy to make those decisions and, and a safe environment to make those decisions. But you still have to have a structure around, around how those decisions are going to be made. How have you done that to be able to kind of create systems and processes so that you can step away and you don't have to be involved in the decision making all the time? Well, I guess we, we were fortunate that our business is already twenty is a twenty four by seven online business anyway, right? Because people can use the account at any time to make to make payments and transfers. So the business already operates that way. And as you said, we have people in different current countries, right? So you know, for example, our customer service team is split between Ireland and Australia. So there's always people available. But but the, the traffic flow or people you know people interacting with us will just move move depending on the time zone right so we're already we're already set up for a kind of you could call it remote working uh, and it's gone very smoothly like you know the the from our point of view you know we because we spend a lot of time talking to the talking to all the employees to make sure that that, that it was working for them right and and, and, there, and there are some people you know genuinely who have struggled a bit with their working at home and because their environment isn't great you know they're in a small apartment. There's three people sharing the one kitchen table, you know, basically to work during the day and make trying to make phone calls. So it's not easy for everybody, you know. So what we're so we're very focused on that to our HR team, reaching out to people to make sure that everybody is fine. And we are going to be opening the office um, in July for only for certain people. So you know, we've we've we basically uh, identified uh, the probably the initial number of people who need to come back to the office for a whole range of reasons, whether it's, you know, whether it's a working environment, whether it's just their own mental, mental health reasons, they need just to be in an office environment. Uh, and we're going to open the office for those people, but it's gone very well for us because again, it comes down to communication. Like we have, we have a monthly town hall meeting with the, with everybody where we go through like, okay, last month we said we we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Did we do X, Y, and Z? Yes or no. And honestly, honestly, yes or no. Right. And if not, why not? What are we doing to fix it? And, you know, and then next month, so we keep, keep giving people kind of, Communicate, keep communicating with people clearly all the time so that people know what's happening in the company. Because right? that's the biggest thing, I think, is people lose that sense of togetherness. They lose a sense of community in a company when they're all working or working remotely. Anyway, we don't see each other. Like I've seen one person on the, on the management team in the last eight weeks, and that was for about 15 minutes, right? So, but we, we talk all the time on the phone or, or you know, on, on, on Slack or email and other, app, other apps. 
basically as well. But we've we'd already been used to doing that. Like last year, our COO spent most of the year in Asia, right, setting up the infrastructure. But she was still a route to still a COO for the whole company, so she was still doing the job remotely. You know, so uh, so we already have all the structures in place to do to let people work remotely. Absolutely, and um, just be, before we wrap up, I'm curious with the current climate that we're in at the moment, has the uh, added focus and investment into the Asian market served you better in the the stalemate that we're going through right now with the coronavirus? Well, we can't travel to Asia, obviously, and, haven't been, and we haven't been able to travel at all um, since before Christmas. Unfortunately, it's really unfortunate because we we were supposed to be going back to do a big, big launch in January, and then we postponed postponed until after Chinese New Year because you know because nothing much happens really in China in, or in, and in Hong Kong in January before because it's all the build up to the New Year. So we haven't been back since. So it, it, in Asia, we haven't moved forward as quickly as we'd like to have moved forward. Um, now we are moving things forward, but. Uh, some of the new country launches we haven't been able to kick off because we're not physically there to do so. But but I think longer term, the 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 roadmap we've outlined for the company's growth plan, the work we put into Asia last year is definitely serving us well because when the world economy comes back, Asia will come back first. And you can see it already. Look at the, the proliferation of COVID cases. Like it's you know, east let's call it Southeast Asia or even East Asia, COVID is is in decline. You know, Hong Kong and Singapore, China itself, um, Malaysia, you know, Indonesia, you know, I'm not certain about um, Japan. All those countries, you know, ha- are moving beyond COVID and they're, like, they're managing it. Obviously, unfortunately, India and Bangladesh, you know, in the subcontinent, it's, it's still challenging there. But as you go further west then, you know, into, into Southern Africa, into the US, Latin America, you know, you see it just beginning to completely mushroom there. So, you know, we 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 think all the work we've done will help us because the Asian economies will recover first, absolutely recover first. Um, and longer term, you know, we're in business for the long term. We we we're, we're in business to serve our customers for the long term. So, you know, we've we've seen the ups and downs before as a management team. Like, you know, everybody on our team is very experienced. They've all seen at least one downturn, you know, before. Um, and uh, you know we're we're totally committed to what we're trying to trying to do uh, for you know for our customers, uh, and we just we just keep working working away at it. Um, so I think it's, it definitely helped. It will definitely help us. Uh, it certainly helped us in the short term as well because you know the, the, our revenue has, has held up pretty pretty well in Asia, um, basically as well. And, what, and we had we had really we had a really good start to the year as well because people were moving a lot of money around because of COVID, right? And basically as well and making international payments and transfers. But longer term, some of these subs, not some of the segments for international payments are going to struggle a bit. Fortunately, not the ones we're in because we're not in, in like remittances into Africa and places, you know, and which is really unfortunate and sad because the countries that need most those remittances are going to struggle to get the inflows. Um, but uh, but we don't we don't really service those markets. Um, uh, so I think we're, we, our strategy has served will has served us quite well and will serve us very well going forward. Super. Just something out of curiosity from my end. Uh, do you ever have the intentions of publishing this playbook and sharing it with people? No, it's uh, to be honest, I don't really. I, like I share, I share it, you know, with people. Some pieces of it, I'm happy to talk to people about it. Um, and the difficulty to explain to people is, you can say, look, it's only useful if you implement all of it. Yeah. Right. But implementing all of it starts with you, the individual. Like you know, it's like like you know, it's like um, you have to believe it. You know, like it's it's much more about the essence of you as an individual. Um, so it's quite personal to myself and the, and the other guys, the other two guys who helped me, you know, helped me out in the early days, um, Darren and Dave, uh, when we launched these businesses, you know, back a while. 
Um, so I do, I do share it with people. Uh, I do, you know, relate pieces of it to people as we, as we kind of, as I help them develop and scale their businesses. And I'm actually helping two other companies at the minute, you know, basically in my spare time, you know, to scale basically as well, you know, because they're good companies and they're good guys and I know them quite well. And, you know, I'm happy to help them out um, because I know them well. And more importantly, because I know they're, they're committed to, to trying to do things. Um, I don't, I don't think it'd be a bestseller though. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? It could. It could be. Well, I I really look forward to seeing what's going to happen with currency fair over the next three three to five years because you've you've done a lot just in the last three years since you've got in there, and uh, and thank you. Thanks for coming on and sharing your story and and engaging with people in the digital Irish community and and just to share on that, if people wanted to engage with you or currency fair, how can they how can they do that? Uh, sure. Well, they can engage with Currency Fair at www.currencyfair.com, right? Um, they can email me directly, actually, paulburn at currencyfair.com. Um, if they, and I'm, I'd worry, any anybody contact me anytime. Like I don't, I read all, I read all emails, uh, you know, and I respond to them. So, so we are pretty open as a company, and and our, our, even our whole leadership team basically is networking the community, helping people basically as well. So if I can't help somebody, I'll try and find someone on the leadership team or someone else I know who can actually help them. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you to Paul for joining me on the show today. And thank you for listening to today's show. If you have any suggestions, please reach out to hello at digitalirish.com and let us know. If you want to learn more about Digital Irish, you can visit digitalirish.com or message us on social with the hashtag Digital Irish. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and review the show. It helps us tremendously. And you can also find the show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcasting platforms. I'd like to thank Kieran Kay and Matt Stewart from the Full English Post for producing this episode. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast. <laughs>